Hi, David. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Doing pretty good. Good to meet you. <laughs> yeah, good to meet you. I don't know. Where should we start? Where would you like to start? <laughs> well, so uh, maybe do you want to say a little something about this podcast that you uh, that you have going here? Yeah, sure. That's a good good thing I should probably have done very early on. Um, I guess now that I think about it, I haven't ever really explained what the point of this podcast is. So where to start? I'm a grad student at Texas A&M. On my off days, I sometimes like to think I study philosophy. And in the rest of the time, I'm like gripped by existential crisis and really, I'm really not sure what I do. But in the line of philosophy that I've become really interested in, I have fallen in with the Wittgensteinians. And I'm super into that. No regrets about that. I might be the, I think I, at this point in the history of philosophy, I might be one of the only people to unironically and proudly identify as a Wittgensteinian, as opposed to having it as an accusation leveled against you. But about a year ago, actually, I thought to myself, for whatever reasons, the historical reasons, some of which you outline really nicely in your book, I guess it's reasonable to say Wittgensteinianism has kind of fallen on hard times in the US, or at least it seems like that simply because I had the hardest time finding any living Wittgensteinians in the US before a certain point in my graduate career. So I thought, well, I could just be sad and lonely or cast some of my Wittgensteinism to the world. And that in, involved in all of that is discovering that I'm really not alone and that there are lots of really cool people who'd work on Wittgenstein and religion. I also do philosophy of religion. I'm not just a Wittgenstein scholar. And so this podcast represents an, something like an attempt to either flutter around my own fly bottle or perhaps break out of it into other people's fly bottles. It's to express you know, what Wittgensteinian philosophy of religion is all about, or at least what I think it can be about, incorporating as many voices as I can into that, because I realize that isolation is not a good thing. And so really, I'm, after a certain point, besides just talking through my own preoccupations and interests, I thought to myself, the way this really got started as a motivation in terms of reaching out to other philosophers was that I, in my case, I found that a lot of the philosophers who are, have been really influential for me happen to have had a bad case of mortality and are no longer here to talk to. So I thought, and before that happens too much more, I should try to track down and talk to people who I find interesting and whose work is important for me so that there's exists a conversation to refer to. I guess it, that might be frame it a little bit self-servingly, but really I just want to document and have a place for the, all of our voices because I think they're really cool voices. And so I thought if, if nobody's done this yet, why not just do it? Because that's how I, I, do, I, I do a lot of things in my life, I guess. So that's how the podcast gets started. Now, in terms of how I have begun reaching out to people, a lot of that has just been opportunistic. I'm reading a book that I like a lot, and I think, wow, I hope to the gods that the, like, you know, the writer is still alive. And, and the, for those who are, um, I thought, well, you know, let's cold call into the ether and see what I can get. But that's how I wound up on this side of this conversation. Yeah, no, I mean, it's really, I think it's, I mean, I think it's great. I mean, this kind of uh, platform didn't, really exist when I was a grad student. And one of the things that I really love about this time is how many sort of micro-targeted podcasts there are out there. So if there's something that you're really into, there's probably a podcast, you know, or good chance there's something nearby. And I think it's, 
it allows for a lot of connections between scholars that just wouldn't have been possible, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Anyhow, thanks for cold calling me uh, for, <laughs> yeah, yeah. about this. I, I'm very happy to, to talk with you. Awesome. Yeah. So I guess the way it seems that this usually, not because this is the most important information, but because this is naturally, I guess, how a lot of the conversations proceed. Why don't you say a little bit about yourself and where, what your current sort of work and philosophical situation is? Yeah, well, so uh, I'm a senior lecturer at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, Shenzhen, where I've been for about five years, although presently I'm in the U.S. because of the pandemic. I've been here, you know, since basically the pandemic began. But in any case, I, I teach philosophy and religious studies and core humanities uh, type classes there. And... I did my doctorate at Boston University working with Juliet Floyd and an MA in philosophy from San Francisco State. I started reading philosophy uh, as an undergrad and that's when I got into Wittgenstein. I, I don't think I knew it at the time, but I was interested, or I, I can sort of trace some of my interests that, I, that I've had since grad school actually to my undergraduate time because Occidental was very much focused on multiculturalism in the curriculum, as well as in the campus community, really sort of holding this up as a, a value for the academic community. And I got to be thinking about maybe, maybe Wittgenstein's philosophy has some sort of resource for uh, engaging with that, with that movement. And so that that's informed a lot of my, you know, where I've been since thinking about religious diversity and philosophy of religion or the the potential for Wittgensteinian philosophy of religion to facilitate conversations across uh, either cultural boundaries or boundaries between religions or between religions and non-religions. Yeah, definitely. I've got, I've leaned more into that multicultural aspect as I've gotten close, like deeper into Wittgenstein. Particularly, I mean, in my program, at Texas A&M. Traditionally, this is slightly changing, but traditionally PhD students in philosophy have been required to do some sort of work external to philosophy. So really it's just, the, it has been the requirement that we get like supplementary degrees, supplementary, like a supplementary master's degree in something that's not philosophy. Hmm. And people do different things with it, you know, but I myself went for anthropology and so, you know, yeah, and so I focus pretty heavily on cultural anthropology because, I mean, there are different sorts of anthropology, just like in philosophy. And so that really interested me. And although, I mean, it interested me independently because I've always been interested in other cultures and religions and just expressions of humanity. But for me, a lot of it has been like leaning into the anthropological aspect of Wittgenstein's writing. So that's kind of how... I guess I began to suckle more deeply into it, but yeah, it's always interested me, but I've seen so much value in the interdisciplinary work of Wittgensteinians. And I, I think, I mean, I think that Wittgenstein's philosophy lends itself to that. I don't think, I think you would get that even if you were just doing something like in the old days, like philosophy and maybe mathematics, but either way, like the interaction of fields is really cool to me. So yeah, definitely I, I see the value of the multicultural aspect of the philosophy and especially in religion like philosophy of religion you'd think and would hope that that would be to the forefront although of course historically hasn't always been yeah that's right uh in fact 
I think that all too often it's sort of an add-on to uh, mainly sort of, you know, Christian theistic or atheistic orientation to the field. That's starting to change, I, I think, but this is where putting philosophy of religion in conversation with anthropology or religious studies, I think, can be very helpful. So the most recent book of yours that I'm familiar with, that I'm actually in the process of reading, is Wittgenstein Within the Philosophy of Religion, which was published in 2014. When I read books by Wittgensteinians, I always have a bit of like an emotional crisis because I think on one hand, damn, this is so good. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure that I need to write more on this. This is so good. But also, again, the despair over, oh no, maybe I, I don't know if I can write more about this. This is so good. So your book's definitely like one of those. I like it a lot. And oh, for, uh, for a couple of reasons, I think that it, it's a great piece of history of philosophy, whether or not you were going for that conscientiously and whether or not historians of philosophy would regard it as history of philosophy. All that aside, I think it does a great job of displaying the history of our specific subfield. I mean, I call it Wittgensteinian philosophy of religion. I know that you're hesitant, but like Wittgenstein influenced slash inspired philosophy of religion. It's a great intro just to that tradition. Because I think that one of the things that I've struggled with, not so much personally, but in the literature in terms of scholarship is when did we as like, I don't know, a subdiscipline within philosophy become infected by the bogey of relativism and anti-realism? And because I mean, that for me, that's just the biggest struggle. Like most of the time, if you were looking for an account of Wittgensteinian philosophy of religion, you'd get something heavily biased towards Phillips and, you know, the Swansea school, which I mean, I like them. I, that, I mean, it's, it's just a problem of representation. And then there's, it makes it difficult to relate ourselves to other analytic philosophers or philosophers within the analytic tradition because the preoccupations have been just been slightly different over time. So it's a great history book, but I'm really excited by, and I, this is what I kind of wanted to talk more about, not only because I have not finished these portions, but because I think you'd probably express it better like we often do in person. So the last chapters of your book are called very excitingly, Religions, Epistemic Isolation and Social Trust, all very f fascinating words that I work with a lot. And of course, Wittgenstein's ethic of perspicuity in the philosophy and the philosophy of religion, because that's what I really like. I have picked up on it on separate sources. There are various, I guess, there are, I guess, various Wittgensteinians and ordinary language philosophers who have touched on like perspicuous representation. But I really like your treatment of it as like a unifying ethic that helps us understand Wittgenstein's work. I like to think that I was beginning to grope my way towards that anyway, but it just really helped. Like I said, it's helpful when you read something, you're like, oh, wow, that's so much better put than I was thinking. But yeah, so in terms of how to, how to say this, I'm really nervous about the history of philosophy going into the future, not only because of the, the proverbial unemployability that many of us struggle with, but the more broadly, I've encountered this problem and that is that I don't think the wider world if they ever did, that's a separate question, but certainly now it's just very difficult to describe what philosophers do and what the point of doing philosophy is. Because on one hand, if you do it poorly, it's obviously just a backup of the academy and like all of the elitism that goes into it. And at the same time, if you're really trying not to just be, like you're trying to not just study ancient dead white people, but how, where do you go from there? Like, how do you actually incorporate that multiculturalism and those other voices? And that's something which I think is, we're still struggling with as the field of philosophy broadly. And of course, within Wittgensteinian philosophy also. But I'm interested in what you think the directions are. 
not so much, I mean, where we necessarily will go, because that's its own pessimistic prediction that I don't want to get involved in. But if we're looking at possibilities here, what do you see as the like a, a positive, fruitful direction for philosophy of religion, specifically, whether or not specifically Wittgensteinian, but influenced and formed by Wittgenstein, what should we be doing? What can we be doing? What's the vocation of philosophy of religion? Right. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, it's it's one that I'm spent a lot of time thinking about that. I don't know how much progress I've made in thinking, you know, in terms of actual, you know, producing something concrete to say. But what I what I would say is that I tend to think that at least approaching philosophy of religion with a Wittgensteinian background, I think a lot of the when we think about problems in philosophy of religion, we're thinking about problems of understanding problems of understanding that can arise when instances of language from different areas of life or from different cultures or different historical periods come into contact. And there's more contact between cultures today than maybe there ever has been. So I think that that's going to generate an enormous array of, of problems that could be addressed in whether you think of it as comparative philosophy or cross-cultural philosophy, philosophy sometimes informed by philosophy of religion, sometimes clearly philosophy of religion. I think Wittgenstein has a lot to offer to these, to, to addressing these kinds of problems that crop up. Now, the as I, I think you're rightly raising, the institutional situation with academia is, you know, is, is pretty poor and the foothold that philosophy has in that sort of, you know, neoliberal modern university is, it's, it's pretty precarious. All that being said, in China, there's a lot of new universities that have been founded in the last decade. That's part of what drew me there. Uh, and also the, the possibilities for cross-cultural conversations or conversations about even the categories we're using to frame <laughs> the conversations. But, you know, in terms of what gets me really um, optimistic about the future of philosophy, I would think about comparative philosophy. I think there's a lot of really rich conversations that are happening. Well, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about Chinese philosophy in the last few years, but a lot of these conferences that you, also that I think might be moving online uh, because of the pandemic, a lot of these conferences, I think, are really rich places for cross-cultural conversations that often will involve religions, or at least thinking about the category of religion itself. I found Wittgenstein to be enormously helpful for having these conversations. So I guess what makes me optimistic is, is thinking about the prospects for uh, cross-cultural and comparative philosophy. Yeah, certainly. I think it's right that we have more intercultural interaction, certainly more opportunity for intercultural interaction than our species has probably had before for lots of reasons. And yeah, I think that that puts us in an interesting position, not only with like, how are we going to respond to this, but how do we work through it? I find like in terms of like the practical, when I think about what it is like what it is to be a philosopher within the traditional like academy and you know institution although i'm on like the aspiring end of that trajectory I'm, it's not like i'm like a tenured professor or anything but the way it seems to me is that when someone asks proverbially as we always do right what do you do or what is it like what does your job entail like what is it you actually do 
it's a very difficult and slightly embarrassing question for me and for a lot of philosophers. And it's not just because we really do nothing. It's because I think what we do is what we do is of a character that's you know, like much of Wittgenstein's philosophy difficult to express because it's something which is more of, I think, obviously a practice. Um, that's not just like, well, we could write books and there's lots of great exegetical work on Wittgenstein, but when it comes down to what do you actually do when you're influenced by Wittgenstein, particularly with regard to religion, in my experience, the answer really is have a lot of really weird conversations <laughs> with people. So, I mean, the campus that I'm on or the school that I'm at is in the Bible Belt of the U.S. and has a statistically largely evangelical Christian population, right? Which is not a pro certainly is not a problem. I'm not knocking it. It's just like that means that the number of times I've been accosted with the offer of salvation is not zero. It's <laughs> significantly more than zero. But I've always found that I th I feel like Wittgenstein is in some way kind of Socratic as a figure, and at least in terms of like having those kind of conversations that leave you kind of disoriented and questioning your categories. And I find I try to adopt as some of that, you know, without being too pretentious, but I find that I have lots of really fascinating conversations with religious people who are not expecting a philosopher to make the conversation that interesting. Of course, what else are we good for, right? You know, but I think that in terms of practices, the way I see what philosophy of religion looks like is literally just creating a space in or outside the academy as we're able to, in which we have difficult conversations and not necessarily difficult conversations, just conversations about these things. Cause I really don't know what else philosophy is if not that. Like if you, if you bracket the publishing and like the, all of the institutional ethos that a philosophy like any academic discipline has to have. But if you bracket all that stuff and you sort of are not considering philosophy as a career, but as again, either a vocation or a practice, what does it look like? For me, it never seems to look like much more than, although it's never much less than having an interesting conversation with somebody who you can respect and who you, whose ideas you're interested in. And that doesn't sound glamorous, but I, th I think like for me, Wittgenstein has very much been like finding at last, at long last, after being in social isolation for however long, a conversation partner who kind of doesn't give up on you, either because he's inexorable and you can never sort of rid yourself of Wittgenstein or because he's really trying to help. And it's part of, I think, you know, the therapeutic aspect of Wittgensteinian philosophy. For me, that is what it comes down to a lot of the times. Me having a conversation or choosing to allow myself to have a conversation that I might otherwise not have had, but which I am enriched by, and hopefully other people are enriched by, in which we just literally talk about our assumptions, our categories. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess we could probably do an intellectual history of this, but all I really want to do sometimes is to break people of their kind of like reformed epistemological suppositionalism. I'm like, there's other ways to talk about this. We don't all have to do this. Like, philosophy of religion doesn't stand or fall based on you know, basic belief or anything like that necessarily. So my answer, which has been long-winded, has just been, is about, it is about having those conversations and talking to people who are different from you. And I don't know, enduring the presence of another long enough to be affected by them. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I like that a lot. And what I'm hearing in part in that is uh, some, some resources for an empathetic approach in philosophy or in philosophical conversation. And I think that's, well, I think that's crucially important for understanding another person's arguments because it's all, it's all too easy to, uh, if, if you take a certain argument and 
put it into, say, uh, a frame that's related to your own research project, it's all too easy to set it aside without understanding its uh, richness. I think that, you know, this was a lot of my concern with the category of fideism when applied to Wittgenstein's thought or to other philosophers' thought. There's a way in which it often, not always, but often functions as a way of labeling something so it can be set aside as if understood, but not really understood. And so, you know, a lot of what I was doing in the in the book was about, you know, tracing the the history of the use of this term in classifying mostly Christian theology and then later various approaches in philosophy of religion. And seeing that significantly it was used as a, a way of demarcating what counts as acceptable discourse, acceptably rational discourse. And that just seems like, I mean, it's not, it's not that that one can never make moves like that in academic inquiry. I don't want to say that, but I think if one rushes to that, then it's likely that you're not really hearing the, the thinker that one is, is labeling. So I really like the, the sort of empathetic orientation that I'm, I'm hearing in what you're saying. Yeah, one of the things that, I mean, I've, my reading and my, so I'm, I'm currently in something like the process of dissertating. I think dissertating is something like you're never quite sure when you've begun and you're never quite sure when you've finished until of course you've actually defended. But for me, I've just, I've ranged so far over the wide fields of thought, so to speak, in not trying to figure out what my tack with Wittgenstein is. And one of the things I certainly like about your book and about your approach and everything we're saying is that although I have approached Wittgenstein more upon the epistemological side, so more from the perspective of those who like make use of uncertainty and are interested in what that has to offer the epistemology of religion, I've become increasingly interested in, I guess, the social epistemological aspect of religion. And particularly for, I guess, in two things, I guess, that both worry and excite me. There's an ambivalence about it. But one is that I think it's certainly true and even to a certain extent obvious that religion is a social, you know, human phenomenon. And that, of course, it's not just one thing either. It has, it's multifaceted and there are many different ways of being religious. One thing that interests me, though, is that I guess I don't know if it's because of the particular nature of Western Christianity, but it seems like there's been a lot of I'll just say epistemic neurosis in Western philosophy over religion that has kind of focused really heavily on belief. Obviously, the question of whether those beliefs are justified or justifiable or even stand in need of justification without necessarily and like entering, allowing to enter into the conversation the fact that as you bring up, and like a lot of Wittgensteinians bring up, and even non-Wittgensteinians increasingly bring up, is that belief is also about trust and about relationships of dependence and relationships of authority and tradition. And that I think that can provide, it's a great way for it reinforcing, and if not justifying, displaying the social nature of religion. But I think that can also, like I think the worry, the proper worry for those who did brand Wittgensteinism to be fideistic is not only does this insulate perhaps undesirably, that is to say, not only is it potentially the case that fideism or fideistic tendencies insulate a realm of discourse, like arguably religion, if you think it's a realm of discourse, I can see how you'd be worried to, that it would undesirably insulate it from rational critique. But I think something very similar can happen and does happen, honestly, with individuals, like not just communities, but the thought that 
I mean, especially given the rise, unfortunately, largely in the United States of this sort of this wild skepticism about, you know, the news, about facts, about having these incommensurate worlds with people who are wildly politically different from you. And I think like I, my big worry is I don't want to create a situation not only where religion's isolated, like in cellophane, so to speak, from rational discourse, but I think it's a big worry for me is what the role religion plays in making individual people reasonable or unreasonable in their life. A lot of that does come back to down to who are you willing to listen to? Or who do you habitually listen to? P- whose experiences and testimonies do you accept within your giving and accepting of reasons? And is that problematic at all? I mean, I think it can be. Given that I agree completely, I don't think that Wittgensteinian philosophy of religion needs to be or ought to be fideistic. It certainly militates against the social grounding of a lot of Wittgenstein's thought. But then there is a sense in which we do have to come back to individuals and beliefs. I think you could say very largely right now what I'm thinking through in some of my work is whether we can do philosophy of religion fruitfully without the concepts of belief and self at all. It sounds kind of Buddhist, I think, or but the I, I'm, I'm interested in that, or not so much whether we can do religion or philosophy of religion without those concepts entirely, but what those concepts begin to look like once you open them up to the social, and once you re, and once you think, well, if selves, as I think they are, are socially constituted, then we have to start thinking and talking about them differently with regard to religion than maybe we have if we assume that a self is like a Cartesian self-transparent consciousness or something like that. And similar with belief, part of why I think we can probably do philosophy of religion without belief is just because I think we can do lots of things without proposition, um, without propositions. And so if we don't have, if you sort of remove the intentional object of the alleged intentional state called belief, it's like, well, what do you, what you have is, socially conditioned behavior oftentimes. And so how do we start thinking about that differently than we typically do? But yeah, that's, I guess that's kind of where I'm interested in the project of it. But yeah, very much so. I think a huge interest that I have in the philosophy of religion is what does religion or and or philosophy of religion do for us when we're trying to think about opening up the self to, and even whole systems of belief or realms of discourse to interaction with others who are different from us or just, just others. They don't have to be radically different from us. You just like, you just have to learn, know how to listen to another human being. But, and I'm interested in what that offers to us in our way of thinking about religion. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I really like a lot of what you've just been saying. A couple things come to mind. I mean, first of all, I think uncertainty is a, is a great, text for thinking about these kinds of concerns because this this role of trust in the inculcation of certain kinds of uh, beliefs or ways of life including religious beliefs there, there are some very uh, provocative remarks in in uncertainty that gesture in this direction and and so you know I'm I, I imagine that you're thinking a lot about the uh, so-called hinge epistemology project that a lot of people are working on these days. And that's, I, I think, of course, incredibly rich work. And one thing I'll just mention, uh, I don't know if you've come across the, there's a project that Uno Venturina is working on at uh, the Nova University Lisbon that's exploring the, the last couple of years, and I think for another year or, or so, exploring 
Wittgenstein and uh, epistemology of religion and, and thinking about it in a variety of ways, but you know, a lot of people working on this are interacting with uncertainty and they've had a, a series of conferences. They have, a, I think they're gonna be having a, the third, they're hosting the third of the hinge epistemology conferences coming up uh, later this year. Anyhow, it's just a lot of really rich conversations have been happening out of uh, out of that project. Also, uh, Sophia uh, Mugens is, is, I think, co-directing that project. But in any case, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of really rich work that's going on related to ways of thinking about religious belief that go beyond propositional attitudes, and I think that's very very important. One thing that I would say that sort of the way that I'm thinking about this, and this is something that I, I suppose is kind of building off of some of the things I talk about at the end of the of the book, is the different roles that belief can play in distinct religious traditions. So that belief is clearly important in many forms of Christianity, uh, as well as Islam, but is it so important in Buddhism? Is it so important in Taoism? And it depends, of course, how we're def how we're defining belief. But in any case, what is what what gets? And I think Kevin Shilbrack's work here on ways of thinking about belief in sort of multi-religious points of view is is very helpful. But still, the, I think one of the key ideas is that. When, when thinking about, say, re religious belief as a, as a hinge commitment, maybe when we're talking about Christianity or Islam, we might be able to identify certain kinds of core doctrinal claims or presuppositions of core doc doctrinal claims as being related to those hinge commitments. But it's not so clear to me with non-Abrahamic religions that that's going to be the case. And so whatever religious belief looks like there is going to be a much more of an interpretive affair than a exploring of a obviously salient feature of the religious tradition. Yeah, one of the things that interests me about, I guess, and also puzzles me about belief, however we can want to conceive it, but especially if you conceive of it propositionally, is you know the the voluntarism involuntarism debate, right? Because um, I think it's another feature of. I mean, religions, again, like broadly speaking, like Christianity and Islam, or maybe more broadly, the theistic religions or the monotheistic religions or the Abrahamic religions, however we want to characterize them, is this idea that you can be, you know, you receive credit for believing you're supposed to, you know, like it, it's either a virtue or it's conceived as something necessary as part of the religion or necessary for salvation. And that always raises the question, but like, what if you can't <laughs> like, like, does it matter whether believe, you know, whether doxastic voluntarism or, or involuntarism is true. And of course, like coming into it, I think like a lot of analytic philosophers, I lean on the side of thinking of belief as largely involuntary, but religion is, it does seem like that place where that's questionable because unlike, you know, perceptual beliefs we form or a lot of other kinds of beliefs that we form kind of involuntarily, there is, not only is it embedded in the religions that presumably you can opt to believe, right? You know, it wouldn't make a great deal of sense for someone to say, repent and believe the gospel if you couldn't actually intentionally believe the gospel. But I think that um, for me, what's interesting about that 
parallel is that, well, not so much the parallel. I think that what's interesting to me about it is that in some, I've met people who sometimes I would think and would be accurately described as willfully believing, almost like in a Jamesian sense. And so, I mean, I have to, I've had to backtrack and think maybe sometimes, you know, based on certain contexts and things, maybe the kind of thing that religious beliefs are just isn't quite the same thing as a lot of other beliefs, which is not necessarily to insulate it. It's just to say, wow, maybe sometimes it is definitive or constitutive of a religious tradition that you are supposed to believe certain things. And whether or not you can bring that about by a, like an act of a sheer act of will in the moment, you're certainly supposed to aspire and try. And it reminds me of what Wittgenstein says, I think in the remarks on Fraser's Golden Bough, that belief can be a component of a right. So then that gave rise to me to the bizarre and somewhat disturbing, but also interesting idea. What if it's true that in religion, people do kind of like at some point, any point, make themselves believe things. That would be an interesting and weird ability to have that for some reason we don't have, or at least I don't have in a lot of other domains of life. But when it comes mm -hmm. to religion, it's like, maybe you can. So uh, for me, part of how, part of what that indicates to me is that if anything, I'm, curious about the idea that maybe if belief is involuntary or if at least if it's in if it's conditionally involuntary it there's a lot of senses in which it might not even make sense to fault people epistemically or credit them epistemically for the fact that they hold these beliefs and for me what that speaks to is a need to just be very sensitive and delicate with you know kind of like Wittgenstein says somewhere don't play with what lies deep in another person and I always think about that in terms of the ethics of philosophy of religion I'm like should I really have this conversation like do I really need to it might be fun and titillating for me or edifying even but I you know do, am I just sort of using this as an occasion you know to harass a religious person and they are talking to them about religion for me hopefully the aspiration is not but I do wonder and I think well maybe one of the outcomes of whatever religious belief is it's not as though people are going around willfully doing it just to mess with each other. Like you don't engineer a conversion experience, you know, just to have something to put on your dating profile. <laughs> and so for me, it speaks to a need to be very delicate about the fact that there may be some people for whom their beliefs are an involuntary or maybe even properly basic part of their epistemic life and others for whom that would constitute a kind of weird abuse to try to force them to believe something they didn't believe. So I don't know why I said all that or where I'm going with that, but to me, it's just sort of riffing off of the idea of belief. Yeah, I think if belief is something to pay attention to, uh, even if it's not definitive of religion as such, because I think it's one of those things where it's like, how do you go around telling people well, you like this, or you have these aesthetic sensibilities, but you shouldn't. You should like this kind of architecture more than this kind of architecture. Once you like involve the realm of desire and the realm of like the volitional, I think to myself, there's a lot of potential for goodness here, and also a lot of potential for abuse and for like, you know, sometimes I literally think that there are forms of religion that constitute forms of epistemic gaslighting. And so I'm like, that's really, yeah, it makes me feel icky. But there's also domain places in which I see that religion really helps people find themselves. So I guess a lot of my work is kind of, I mean, it's not exactly the ethics of belief as such, kind of like in a classical, like Cliffordian sense or whatever, but it is kind of like, what are the ethics that are entailed by the fact that we're believing creatures and that we can form beliefs and that we do form beliefs and that sometimes those beliefs are inexorable or at least very part of our identity. 
And what do you do with that? <laughs> because I'd like to tell people, like, I'd like to tell delusional people who stormed the Capitol, don't do that. But what are my grounds for saying that? For so many people, this is presumably not just like, it's not like a frivolity, like let's go do these extreme activities just because. It's like, there's obviously a story to be told about the role that these beliefs play in people's lives. And that makes it really tricky and messy to deal with, which I can, I mean, I don't, I almost wish that I was just a boring logician or something, someone who's, someone whose work didn't touch so intimately upon the core of so many people, but that's just how it's fallen out. And that's what I find really meaningful, but it is really, I don't know. I approach philosophy of religion with a lot of trepidation because the more and more I think about the role that it plays in making people who they are, the more I realize that, you know, this isn't, certainly it's not something that can be dealt with in one brief 20 minute conversation on the side of the road, but then I'm not sure exactly how to deal with it. I know that I have this vocation to have conversations with people, but I don't know exactly where the conversations should always go. And it's obviously not the case that I'm the only one leading them. But there is an uneasiness because I think that's just true of being human. Philosophy brings into our awareness that we're with other humans and we somehow have to live together and talk together, but it's not pre-guaranteed how that's gonna go. It can go really badly or it can go really fruitfully. And it's, there's a sense in which I'm powerless over that. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think this is really, well, so, so a couple of things that come to mind for me here is thinking about the the conditions for and the possibilities of trust, because I see trust as something that's crucially important for understanding at least certain minimal kinds of trust. I think that a classroom setting institutionally establishes at least some of those conditions so that it's possible in a classroom setting to be exploring questions that are about things that are very deep within a person's life within the, the context of, say, analyzing concepts or weighing reasons uh, or evidence in a way that you might not do that, you know, if you're just in a, a coffee shop or interacting with a family member or, or something like that, you know, that the, the, the conditions of trust that are present in an institutional setting like a classroom allow for certain kinds of, of inquiry. But I also think that in some settings, the, the conditions for trust may be lacking. And I think the US, we're seeing this at least practically and politically speaking. It's extremely, I, I've never seen it so difficult as it is right now to have conversations across uh, boundaries of political difference and certain kinds of religious differences. I still think that it's a matter of, of practicality about the, the possibilities of trust. I don't think that uh, those possibilities are completely foreclosed, but I, I do think that it's reasonable that some people might give up on those possibilities in particular settings. And I think that the, the divide between the people involved in the capital insurrection that I would think in a context like that, it would be extremely difficult because a lot of these people will be committed to, as you're saying, uh, you know, distrusting a wide swath of possible sources of information and 
trusting other sources of information. And I think, yeah, I think it'd be really, practically speaking, extremely difficult to have a conversation across those boundaries, but it may not always be that way. That's, that's one thing I would say. And the other thing I'd say is that sometimes trust can be built through, through empathetic interpretation and conversation, at least on a local level. I think that's possible. It might take, given the kinds of divides that we presently have in the US, it might take a long time a lo and a lot of effort to do that. But I, I don't see that as something that's inherently impossible. Definitely. I'm also kind of optimistic. I've, I vacillate. Honestly, it's like a give or take 50-50 throughout the week. Sometimes I'm wildly optimistic, almost like an Enlightenment era philosopher. And other times I'm like a hardcore 19th century pessimist. And I'm just like, <laughs> this is going nowhere. I regularly joke that, you know, since I am a Wittgensteinian, if all of this whole like having conversations and promoting dialogue doesn't work, I can always retreat into like silent mysticism. <laughs> but yeah, I'm hoping kind of not to have to do that. Like, I'd like to at least say some things before I have to be shut up. No, yeah, all of that's very good stuff. And I think that it's true that in individual circumstances, particularly like, like those real one-on-one -on -one encounters or small encounters where you're able to talk with people in ways that are not simply like, here's how you're wrong, now think different. But really like in the, in the intercourse of everyday life, where it's just like, wow, we both are the kind of creatures that get hungry we should probably get lunch or we're both the kinds of caffeine addicted creatures that need a coffee. Let's go get coffee. And in those circumstances, it's a lot easier because it's almost like as long as people have their guard down, which doesn't mean that it's an actually hostile encounter, but if, as long as people aren't super defensive, it usually can be quite can work. But <laughs> if there is that hermeneutic of suspicion or fundamental distrust whether on the side of someone who, whether on any side of the political spectrum or with, with any particular religious valence, yeah, it's kind of bleak. The, the prospects look bleak if there's not yeah. that foundational trust. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. And I think that, you know, this is, Wittgenstein himself is often characterized as a pessimist. And I think that is broadly true. I think it's broadly true. But I also think that Wittgenstein can be read as someone who has a very sober appraisal of the conditions for, has a very sober appraisal of what the conditions are for the possibility of understanding. And if one can gain that in a particular setting, then one knows where to begin, perhaps, in working to, to say, rebuild trust. But I, I do think that where distrust has become established it's very hard to 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 build trust in that kind of in that kind of context yeah i mean another area in which i don't know like given my current surroundings that i see a place well another area that makes me wonder what the place of a philosopher of religion really is i know that in a lot of uh, um, in a lot of religious discourses or conversations particularly in the west particularly for instance on the side of proselytizing religions, often there's some kind of objective for a conversation, you know, namely to convince the other person of something they didn't think before. For in my case, it's often difficult because when I, you know, approach it or I engage in a conversation about religion or a religious conversation with someone who is religious, I have to kind of step back and think, 
I'm really not sure if I have an objective. Again, I'm having a conversation. It's, you know, maybe it's, it's, it feels a little bit like classical conceptual analysis, like just that I'm not sure, exactly sure where it's going, but it's, it's going somewhere, I guess. But I do wonder, because the, yeah, like I think that can be another interesting question about not necessarily, like I get why there is, at least in the United States, a certain distrust of philosopher types, not just because of the, you know, the general suspicion of intellectualism that Americans seem to delight in, but moreover, just because sometimes it is like, what is it that I do? Like, why do I want to have these conversations? What's the point? What's the goal? And again, it's very difficult to describe the goal because so much of my life and thought has just kind of culminated in this view that philosophy is this endless conversation whose value is in the conversation and there's not much to get out of it before you start it. So it's very difficult for me to convince people this isn't a waste of time, I promise, even though I'm probably not going to convert to your particular species of Christianity by the end of this, we can still have a really important conversation. But yeah, getting that idea across that it's worthwhile to have certain conversations, even if they don't obviously go somewhere practically, whether it's to the altar or to anywhere else is a, it's difficult to express to people in my area, at least. And I don't know if you've ever had the same kind of, in general, I don't know if philosophers of religion struggle with this because I know that there are some types of philosophers of religion who, as you mentioned in your book, are often in a certain sense, philosophical apologists or philosophical theologians, people who are work, like contributing to the theology of their specific religion through their philosophizing, which is great. I mean, this philosophers have always done that. But if you're not one of those people, like I'm not, I think there is a bit, a bit of a, um, a worthwhile question to Wittgensteinians. What exactly are we doing? And do like, is there, I mean, that's why I like the ethic of, pros, of perspicuity so much, because that is, it, it, it is a goal. It is something it's like, we can strive for this optimal level of philosophical transparency and clarity whether or not we can show to other people what the value of that is, I'm not sure. But I don't know if you've, in your experience, it's been difficult because I've been described by my, some of my colleagues and friends as like a very bizarre sort of figure because although I'm personally not religious, although that itself is a very loaded thing to say and I'm not sure what it means, although I'm not the adherent of an existing confession, obviously I'm a, I'm a very committed philosopher of religion and I try in a Wittgensteinian spirit to do a lot of, to do justice and to do, be very sympathetic or empathetic in my study of religion. And that often winds up in the bizarre scenario that I look really religious, or at least I think about religion a lot more than even some of my religious friends. And that looks kind of suspicious for a philosopher. I'm not sure how to feel about it, but it is, it is something I've had to get, lean into and realize, you know what, this is just how I am. David is obsessed with religion, even though he doesn't have one. But I don't know how you've experienced that in philosophy of religion or for yourself. Yeah, well, so that's clearly a, a divide that one sometimes finds in the field. And I think often with Wittgensteinians, maybe not always, but, but often. But I think also with philosophy-based philosophers of religion and religious studies-based philosophers of religion. I think that religious studies-based philosophers of religion tend to be more oriented towards hermeneutics, even if they're working within an analytic frame, that the the uh, goals are about, say, understanding a tradition or a set of practices or a belief in as detailed and, you know, I'd say as, as clear as possible, 
I, I think that that that's something that you'll find a, a distinct difference that often philosophers of religion who are based in religious studies don't tend to be normative about what they're doing. That's not true across the board, of course, but I think that there's a, a tendency away from normativity on the religious studies side. And I think that the philosophy-based philosophers of religion may not recognize that as philosophy. They may see that as important work that's historical or important work for interpretation, but not really the mainstream of what philosophy uh, is. And I think that that's a, that sometimes gets reproduced. You know, if I remember going to conferences, uh, going to the APA and whatnot, say 20 years ago and seeing much more of the apologetic style approach uh, usually advancing some form of, of Christian theism. And that's, you know, I, I certainly think that is a completely legitimate approach in philosophy of religion, uh, absolutely. But it's not the only approach. And, and so I would say that it sometimes is surprising whenever I, to other people, when I encounter them, tell them that I'm doing philosophy of religion and they might then assume that I'm an advocate for a particular religion, which I'm not. That you know, and, and I'll say I'll, I'll frame what I'm doing as basically facilitating conversations across boundaries of of culture, of identity, of of religion, and so on. I think maybe that can be a little bit. That sort of framing can can help a little bit. But there's often that initial sense that oh, you're doing philosophy of religion. That means you're clearly advocating for some religion, right? Uh, <laughs> and no. It's typical to equate, I think, at least especially for the non-philosophic public, philosophy of religion with some kind of theological project or an apologetic project, which again, it certainly can. Like there's no, there's nothing, there's no reason why it couldn't. Part of the way I express this difficulty for myself though to others is that, and this, this will probably sound like, I don't know, sacrilegious, but I'm not terribly interested in God. And so I think the, the way I express it is that those people who you're describing, right, like are in some different sense, if we if, if it's too, if it sounds too cumbersome to say philosophical theology, those people are philosophers of God and faith, or maybe they're philosophers of their own particular form of Christianity. Although, of course, one would always wish that in doing so, someone was able to be more critical if they're going to do a philosophy of their own religion. But for me, it's like, no, no, no. I really am a philosopher of religion. Like it's the religio that I'm interested in. It's, and it's, the, it's, the, it's the ties that bind, the lies that bind, you know, the truths that bind, all of that. I'm interested in that because as a very social phenomenon, again, like whether or not it's because I have like an anti-metaphysical bent because I'm a Wittgensteinian, regardless or not, independently, it's just, I've realized uh, that's just not my jam. My jam is the people who are religious and who have to somehow make it in this world. And of course, that involves their belief in beings like God or the gods or whatever the supernatural element of the religion, if there is one, right, is there, but it's not the whole of it. So that I sometimes find even, I sometimes find philosophical theology a distraction from religion because it's so, I mean, I get it. Like if I was able to achieve the beatific vision, of course, I would just want to gawk at the most interesting being ever for all eternity. Because I guess we all are just like visually addicted to that kind of thing as humans or maybe as Western people. But it, it can miss a lot. And the things that it misses are, I think, 
or at least can miss if it's not done carefully enough, is the social element, the everything about religion that isn't literally divine. Because we, you know, anyone who's not illiterate historically knows that the history of religion is not entirely divine. And I think we should talk about that, you know, in terms of creating those conditions of a trust. And sometimes literally just being straight up with people and saying, you want to know why they don't believe your message? Maybe it's because you enslaved them. Or you want to know why the, your position is now doctrinally not seen as credible? Let's look at the history of like, you know, all the bad, like, let's look at all the things that removed the trust. And you can't solve the trust by trying to obsess about, about the belief and whether the belief is justified. Because I've developed this idea. I don't know if it's true or not. So like most philosophical ideas, I have no idea what its real value is. But I like to think that all chains of explanation, because of the nature of what I take explanation to be, which we don't have to get into, but we can. I wanna say something ambitious, like and bombastic, like all chains of explanation terminate in either persons or communities, because either your source of information in terms of the giving and receiving of claims just is literally the human other who's in front of you, or eventually it will bottom out in the testimony of the tradition, which is really all we have, <laughs> because as we all know, like why should we think that we've existed longer than five minutes? You know, as, as long as we're going to involve the possibility of these kinds of, again, like gaslighting the soul, <laughs> as long as we can rule out that I'm being utterly deluded by superhuman beings, I have so little to hold on to. The least I can do is to hold on to the human other who's like accosting me with their message. Because I think, like, again, part of, like, I guess, I like that you bring up that our field, especially as Wittgensteinians, is incidentally and thorough, and not just incidentally, but uh, very thoroughgoingly hermeneutic, which also, like, I guess it can also engender confusion, right? Because now, like, it's not as though we're typical continental philosophers either in, like, the Heideggerian, right. Gadamerian tradition. I do think of myself as a Herderian hermeneut, just because having studied Herder and the, like, the rich connection to Wittgenstein there, I see the historical connection. I'm like, okay, I get it. We are hermeneuts. But that itself matters, right? And it's about as, it's as true and as misleading as Austin describing ordinary language philosophy as linguistic phenomenology. It's true. It's just like, as labels go, does it, does it really categorize us with the right kind of people? I'm not sure. The whole, the hermeneutic part is really important because it is about understanding, I think, and it depends on what you're trying to understand. I'm trying to understand the impact of religion in and on and upon all the preposition humanity. And as a result, I just don't need to think as much about the other side of the sky. Although I realize that's very tempting to talk about. I can see why most of us throughout history have wanted to talk about it. But I like, sometimes I like trivial things, right? I think that's, as a Wittgenstein, you have to have a soft spot for the genre painting, the trivialities of everyday life. And one of those just is, we're here and we're having this conversation, whether it's you and me or whether it's me and some other interlocutor, that itself is weird enough for me to be interested in. Like, I wanna talk about the fact that we're having a conversation. And then maybe later on, we can talk about what the conversation was about, but it was weird enough that a, lot, a bunch of shaved apes got together and chattered to each other and got really excited. And that's something that I wanna understand more too. So certainly I, I, I think the important aspect of underlying the hermeneutic task that we have is good. Although of course, like all things in philosophy, it can be confusing. Yeah. One thing I might mention here is that a lot of my thinking about, you know, this, this ethic of perspicuity, partly this derives from 
my studies with Juliette Floyd and her very wise counsel on reading Wittgenstein and and being careful about what kinds of theoretical approaches you try to understand Wittgenstein with and letting Wittgenstein's text speak. I feel like that's one of the most important things that I learned in in grad school. And I think, yeah, that, that comes that comes directly from her uh, from her guidance. I might also mention that I studied with professor in religion, um, John Clayton, who he died a couple of years into my studies and I was brought on to help finish and uh, prepare for publication a, a book project that he'd been working on called Religions, Reasons, and Gods. And in that text, and in a lot of his work, maybe the last uh, couple decades of his life, he was looking at the clarification of defensible differences as an aim for inquiry in philosophy of religion. And, you know, I think in part, he was thinking about how to do cross-cultural philosophy of religion. In part, he's also thinking about philosophy of religion based in a religious studies department, how to, how to make uh, or pursue philosophy of religion in a way that is continuous with a lot of the deep contextual work that other colleagues in religious studies might be pursuing, whether they're sociologists or historians, uh, as well as theologians. So he emphasized the clarification of defensible differences, which is definitely something that there's a, uh, when I think of possible applications of the ethic of perspicuity, that's one of them. And so I, I sort of wrote the, the dissertation, which became the book, with an eye to how to sort of develop a kind of Wittgensteinian scaffolding or how to, how to link up some of the concerns in Wittgenstein's philosophy with what I saw Clayton doing in, in his book. But one thing I'd say is that it's one thing to talk about the clarification of defensible differences in academic work where your, your empathy, your rich contextual work is about getting texts, well, reading them very carefully and reconstructing sympathetically what kinds of claims are being made in those texts and what ends those claims are aiming at. It's quite another to be doing that in real time, say in a classroom or for that matter in political discourse. And I think that, you know, often in academic work, this clarification of defensible differences is imaginary. You're imagining and other whose work you're trying to represent faithfully. When you're having a conversation with someone, you're, you're trying to encounter them and their ideas in real time with that sense of empathy and patience. And I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think that there is an element of what's unpredictable or maybe even magical about the possibilities for conversation, how they can go in directions you don't expect but that also makes those sorts of real time conversations outside of the study much more difficult. Yeah, one of the things that this reminds me of a lot is that I also, barring of course the pandemic, um, try to practice philosophizing with children, right? Mm. And although, I mean, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm inviting an infantilizing analogy. The proper analogy is this, and that is that 
for those who have worked with kids before, whether they're teachers or just parents or, I mean, we were all presumably kids at one point, right? Barring skeptical scenarios. And so I think that it's well known, or at least it's well attested within the philosophy for children literature, that you can have these magical moments of, you know, philosophical encounter with a young person who we would never expect to have philosophical ideas. But the, there's always a worry, or there's a possible practical and ethical limitation on practitioners of philosophy for children, in that even though that stuff is really cool when it happens, especially with young children, that can't itself be the goal because it just means, then that would mean effectively that you're trying to squeeze a bunch of hallmark moments out of children who are just children. And so I think the important thing like there or the relevant analogy to draw with philosophizing about religion is that I think there's a, unless it's like the most abstract logical stuff that you can do in your ivory tower, all philosophy is about or is occurs, operates by having conversations with significant others, but what we, I don't know, what we expect and what we demand of those others and of ourselves in those conversations. I think a lot of, of Wittgenstein's work on the self analogy or just description of how philosophy is, where I can, sometimes I do have really magical almost moments with people I'm talking to about religion as such, or I'm just engaged in a religious conversation they're having. But I always have to think like, well, even if it didn't, that didn't happen, you can still have done meaningful work. You can still have clarified things. I shouldn't go chasing the magic, trying to, I don't know, trick people into having cool philosophical ideas, although that's, you know, enjoyable when you can spark something. It's more of, since it's not pre-guaranteed either in the case of kids or in people you just want to talk to about religion or anything else, an important thing is that, while I, well, I think the ethic of perspicuity is a great aspiration to have personally, I guess I'm, I don't know how much and how reasonable it is to demand it of other people. Because again, Absolutely. it can be, yeah, because it, it can be this, like, it can be this as bizarre and Kafka-esque as demanding that someone change their mind or just understand when they don't. And that's kind of like, <laughs> although again, I, I would be wonderful if I could demand understanding of another person at any given moment, but obviously that's just not how it works. And so I don't think it's someone under the delusion that I'm helping them understand when in fact, I'm just screaming at them depending on how <laughs> the conversation gets and what it's about. But yeah, so definitely, again, like it's, it's part of why I think that philosophy is such a worthwhile, but in so, in so many ways, such a fragile endeavor. Because although there's this high vocation, the actual guarantee, there's no actual guarantees. And so you just have this vocation. Like, it's very much like Wittgenstein. I wonder, I, I imagine this is why he was half insane and ridden by angst his whole life. You have this uh, almost superhuman vocation about as God's eye point of view as you can get without the God's eye point of view, depending on how far that you want the scope of perspicuity to be. And then you're just, but then you're also left with the fact, A, I am this finite creature with a limited point of view and all everyone else around me is as well. How do we create a scenario where we can be limited creatures with limited points of view and not kill or harass each other without end because of trying to help each other and learn and understand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so no, I completely, completely agree about the idea that an, an ethic of clarification is something that you absolutely cannot demand or even expect of other people that when you begin a conversation, I think part of what you, you figure out is 
what your own aims are in the conversation and how those might align or not with your conversation partner. And one of the things I've been working on in, in more recent times is a sort of comparative exploration of ethics of clarification between a couple different texts in classical Confucian philosophy and Wittgenstein. And I'm thinking here of the Analects and the Shunza. And one of the things I would say is I think that broadly speaking, one can find a kind of ethic of clarification that's also present in classical Confucianism. However, it's, it's not an end in itself. It is something that is practiced as a means towards achieving a virtuous social harmony. And there's further uh, elements that you see if you look in the Analects versus the Shunza about that. But, but what, what I see there is that clarification as a philosophical method or goal is present cross-culturally, but still may have different ultimate aims. And when conducting cross-cultural conversations, even within philosophy, one might become aware of that. And that even the, the, the question of who gets to do the clarification in order to resolve a, a problem, is it, is it the philosopher? Is it any philosopher? Is it anyone who can become a philosopher? Or is it only certain people in certain roles who are in a position to clarify? And that brings in political questions about how one goes about aspiring towards being a, a philosopher or a sage who might be in that kind of clarificatory position. So I guess what I'd say is I, I see, I, I do see this as a, a cross-cultural propensity, but within specific cultural and philosophical contexts. And, and definitely it, I completely agree. It's not something that you can expect of others. I do think that sometimes with students, one can show them the usefulness of these kinds of moves. And then if they find them genuinely useful, they may continue thinking along these lines. But I think that there's a, a kind of pragmatic question about how much uh, contextual clarifying insight or historical clarifying insight there's an ultimate question about how useful it will be for your student to to put into their into their frame. Well, one book that I'm reading right now, a relatively recent, is a Jesuit named Francis Clooney. He's an Indologist who fo um, focuses on, among other things, the Purva Mimamsa, which is the hermeneutic tradition or one of the hermeneutic traditions in classical Hindu philosophy. So he wrote this book called Reading the Hindu and Christian Classics, which is this sort of program he suggests for a text-based study of relevantly similar text from different traditions. But of course, notwithstanding the similarity, different enough to help you sort of think between two different traditions and sort of use them to sort of uncover the, the differences between them, like using their similar format whether it's a classical sort of treatise or um, scriptural text or things like that to sort of reading them through each other, basically as a place for this kind of 
multicultural encounter, but also it's in its focus on text. Certainly that's something which I think was also really helpful about your book that is just bizarre. And I'm not sure why, I'm sure there's reasons, but a lot of analytic philosophers that I know, including I guess at various iterations myself, are just um, historically illiterate. It's easy to see why, because if you sort of think that it's all based on finding and or plugging holes in Benson Mate style logical arguments, which have reference to nothing but themselves, then I can see how that would be kind of frustrating. But the to just be able to treat something like the PI as a text, uh, or you know even the Tractatus or almost anything, that's just so. I think that's a that's a great form of practice. One because I find that in general, I honestly like all undergrads, but I think there's this depending on what kind of philosophical upbringing you have, which really more or less comes down to based on who your teachers were when you were in undergrad or maybe grad school, you sort of pick up, you pick up both their merits and their values, but also their epistemic iniquities. And then you have to work through those over time. But I think that there's such an underappreciation I find nowadays for whatever reason for the philosophical text. And I think it's just in generally because I, I, although I like to think otherwise, I believe strongly that a lot of people don't read as much as they should anymore. And so it can be difficult to just have taken for granted a grounding in a philosophical text that we can just sort of come then and critique. It's more like, I mean, it is more piecemeal, which can be good and bad, but I'm really leaning into this idea of like, what if we just focus on text for a while and pay attention to how the texts use words, how they're formulated, all of those, that, that careful attention to detail that of course a Wittgensteinian would relish in but I find that's another way to help students because there, rather than there being a focus or an obsession with teaching a particular content, like by the end of this, you should know these arguments or you should know these traditions. It's more like by the end of this, it's true. You may only have a very deep, fine-grained reading of a text, but well, first of all, you have that, which is good and valuable, I think, probably for itself. But more importantly, I think that it's, I think a good way into the ethic of perspicuity from my own experience is realizing that a lot of my philosophical anxieties began the moment I started paying attention. Um, almost like an Avian sense, like paying attention to the other or something. And a lot of the problems I see in the world arise from the fact that in, ser- in various ways, people have just haven't been paying attention to certain things they maybe could have been paying attention to, you know, like the environment, among other things. But, you know, whatever we're not paying or aren't paying attention to, the thing that I think a lot of people need practice in is in slowing down and paying, a- paying concerted attention to something, in this case, a text, long enough to be impacted in some way. And similarly, it's not something you know, like, I don't know what I'm going to get out of Peter Lombard's sentences, (laughs) just like I don't know what I'm going to get out of, you know, um, the Upanishads or, you know, the Tao Te Ching. But if you can make the commitment to at least being generous enough to try to get something out of it by paying close attention over a period of time, I find that at the end, for the students for whom I've done that with, whether even though I haven't like used the word perspicuity, they realize, oh, there's more, there's more that can be got out of this if I pay a little bit closer attention and I'm not just looking for like the spark notes or something. Can you imagine a spark notes to the philosophical investigations? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what that would look like. It would certainly be 
wildly problematic, but because that's just the thing, like it's hard to express what it is to be a Wittgensteinian to a lot of people I know simply because there's no shortcut. There's no like, it's slow burn. It's sort of like you have to, in my case, you have to be like epistemically harassed for years and then find a breath of fresh air, accidentally find Wittgenstein. I think that if you, if we were better at inculcating a kind of education in which there wasn't so much of a temptation to look for spark notes and it's like, it's okay to just go through this text. And by the way, almost nobody fully understands it by the end anyway. So <laughs> read the first critique or, you know, the, the, the Socratic dialogues or something and just enjoy, appreciate, think about them. And there doesn't have to be one single end in sight, like writing the paper or taking the exam, but learn how to sit with others' thoughts. And of course, these are a lot of times the, in terms of philosophical texts, these are dead people we can't sit with any more comfortably, but with other people, living people, Often it is just learn how to make it through an awkward silence, like learn how to make it through a difficult, tense part of a conversation that obviously got tense because it invoked some controversial value or belief. And just learning how the task of philosophy, which I guess is going to sound really cheesy, I've come to see more and more that the tasks of philosophy are eerily similar to the tasks of life, which both of which entail at some point learning how to sit down, slow down at least, and be comfortable with discomfort. I don't even think it's just individual people. I think whole philosophical traditions, if it's not too unfair to say, have been born out of an inability to be uncomfortable. I think you could look at a lot of epistemology that way, like the anxiety about skepticism and just the, the need to fight a ghost who I'm not sure is there. Because as you mentioned at some point in the book, it's suspiciously rare that you actually find a true bona fide solipsist or a bona fide global skeptic. So it's more like, did we need these problems so that we could keep publishing? It would not surprise me if at some distinct point in the past, like maybe even a thousand years ago, we solved skepticism and then someone just shredded the answer because that would put an end to the academy. <laughs> I, I, would, I would believe a philosopher to be like both spiteful and silly enough to do that was like, we need to somehow keep writing about this. So we can't actually be done. What I like about, the, about Wittgenstein's philosophical method is that although in one sense you're never really done because it's a task that's always going, there, are, there is such a thing as getting clarity. Not all of us have it, not most of us do it, but there is such a thing where you're like, yes, I've got it. The thing that was harassing me, the, the hair on my tongue or the spider web I walked into, I was able to like finally pluck it away it was so uncomfortable but if, as long as like you have to at least be willing to be uncomfortable long enough to pick at it otherwise you know i'm not sure how you're going to get rid of it but definitely like the ongoing task and i think that sitting with philosophical texts sitting with difficult conversations and just learning how to be naively absorbed in another's words long enough to sort of really hear them out is a big part of the ethos of wittgensteinianism to me well i i think that obviously there's different ways one can be uncomfortable with a, a text, but I, I do think that it's really important to get to that point where one can set aside the reasons why you picked it up in the first place to see how the text might be speaking to you from its own context and its own aims. And, and then of course, you know, returning to your questions, if your questions still stand or if your questions have been undermined from encountering the text. But I think that one of the things I found most valuable about Wittgenstein's thought 
is the way in which it it slows you down with whatever your philosophical project might have been when you approach it. And whether you're trying to figure out what Wittgenstein's stance is on a question and you realize that not as simple as that, that particular texts might offer different methods or moods, and then you as a reader need to figure out what you make of that and how that affects your your inquiry. And I, I feel that way a lot with the topic of uh, religion and understanding various religious phenomena. You know, because on the one hand, Wittgenstein is very much concerned with questions of religious belief and understanding religious beliefs in the various writings that refer to religiosities. At the same time, of course, there are sources like the remarks on Fraser's Golden Bough that emphasize practices and what we might call the the naturalness or the sincerity of, of practices. And, and he takes a normative turn there, you know, and while a lot of Wittgensteinian philosophy of religion emphasizes the descriptive, there is this normative thread that is present there as well. And, and I think you can see that, especially in the remarks on Fraser. Anyhow, I, I guess all this is to say that it brings to mind an essay that Nick Trakakis wrote a couple of years ago called Slow Philosophy, that sort of is a, a parallel to slow food or, or something like that. And then I also think about this uh, remark that Wittgenstein made, you know, this is how philosophers should greet each other, take your time. Uh, I love that. I love that quote. And so often in, in the academy, whether you're preparing for a class or you're working on an essay, time is not something that you have in abundance. So the admonition that he has is, is well worth adhering to, but at the same time, the, the conditions of life may not always allow for it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially because whether or not we have as much, whether or not we're part of, for instance, the bourgeoisie and we have as much time as we want, we're all presumably going to die. <laughs> so yeah, there, there's... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, honestly, my my research in anthropology, one of the things that excited me about a lot of the stuff I'd, I learned whenever I was studying that was the idea of cooperation games. And that like in, a, any, in any system in which there's finite resources and you're trying to prioritize for something, if you really wanna get anything done, you have to cooperate. And that's what makes one of the things that makes our cultural linguistic species so us, I guess. I don't wanna say better. I don't wanna like buy into that, but I mean, we are, a little bit odd for uh, compared to the other creatures on the earth. And I think that, yeah, not only do I think of philosophy and religion as these social enterprises, these social phenomena, but even the task of understanding is collaborative. And so I think of philosophy, if anything, that's why it surprises me that philosophers are not necessarily more collaborative in our work. I honestly just think it's because a lot of us don't know how, either because mm. it's not something that's taught to you, at least it has never been taught to me explicitly in grad school or anywhere else. Here's what professional collaboration looks like, or here's how to even create a professional culture, which is partially how I can imagine that of all people, I can see how the early Wittgensteinians were probably not in a great position to be the social like faces of our movement. It's like, not only can I not imagine necessarily all Wittgensteinians getting along, but then I think of all of our, like the kind of strange you have to be to even be a Wittgensteinian. I'm like, wow, I can see why, <laughs> like we have so many like others and misunderstandings about our particular kind of philosophy, but it's still collaborative. And it's like, um, there's this somewhere in the Talmud, there's a saying, which uh, uh, a maxim that has come out generally from Judaism, which is that 
it's not your job to finish the task, but neither are you permitted to stop. Right. And I think that a lot of that, a lot of philosophy, even in the essay Wittgenstein wrote called philosophy, I think where he's mentioned somewhere that trying to take it in all at once, you can have a lot of trepidation over whether you're ever going to be able to finish. And I think that especially for Wittgenstein, someone who's the majority of whose work was posthumous, that's a relevant concern. Like I, I may not get to finish, right? Like so many of the great figures who influenced me <laughs> died early of cancer or something else, right? So it's, well, I'm a, again, I'm a finite or a finite creature. I want to make some progress towards this, but I need others help. And so we come back to the social, we come back to trust and what it is that even our species is intellectually trying to build, if anything. I'm not sure we're trying to build anything at the moment besides, you know, ever increasing technologies with which to distract ourselves. Obviously that's the cultural pessimism coming out, but there's so much that we could collaborate on. And I'm just curious, I'm like, why, why is that not happening? So again, voila, hence the podcast, hence like a lot of my other considerations. I thought, you know, I know that Wittgensteinism isn't a school, but sometimes I think, well, damn, maybe it should be, <laughs> like maybe. <laughs> but yeah, just there's something precarious, but also precious about it. I think philosophy in general, as well as philosophy of religion, and I don't know if that's just because it has to do with like, it's like the other thing Wittgenstein said, right? That the human gaze has the power to make things precious, but that also in the process makes them more costly. And so I wonder a lot, that might be a good way to maybe not sort of end, but it's something that we haven't yet kind of discussed. But I know that one doesn't just wake up magically being a philosopher, right? It takes, so, in my, it takes for everyone, it takes a little bit of something different. But I always try to ask in the, in the goal of humanizing philosophers so that we're not just the ghost authors of interesting books that one day strange people read and maybe are touched by. From, on, on the more personal side of your philosophical journey, what would you say, if anything, sort of got you into philosophy? And then since our field is obviously not the easiest of things to get on in, what has kind of kept you going in your practice of philosophy? Mm, okay. Well, so in terms of getting getting into it, I suppose in, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and I read just a very little bit of philosophy in high school. Uh, some maybe just some quotations from Nietzsche and Emerson and perhaps a, an extract from Plato's Republic. But it definitely attuned me to there being something that was well worth my time when I got to college. And so I took an aesthetics class uh, and that was really uh, just a wonderful course. It was mostly uh, continental in, in orientation, but was... I found it to just be a really eye-opening class and, and one that, you know, I still sort of carry with me uh, in terms of using various uh, philosophical resources for thinking about and, and interpreting art. And I took some classes in analytic philosophy, uh, history of Chinese thought, took a seminar on Wittgenstein. Yeah, eventually I, I declared a major <laughs> quite late in the game. And then you know went on to pursue a master's in philosophy at SF State, and it's very much a, an analytic-heavy department. Uh, but I worked with Donald Province, who's who's a student of Donald Davidson's, and uh, and and I also worked with um, Peter Radcliffe there, who was the sort of resident Wittgenstein 
scholar. And that's when, you know, I did an independent study on Wittgenstein and disagreement. And I just felt like there was something really rich there in Wittgenstein. I, I knew Wittgenstein's thought a little bit from undergrad, but something really spoke to me in that uh, in that project. But you know, I like I said, I, I as an undergrad, I was really interested in questions of diversity, uh, cultural diversity, religious diversity, and I felt like a lot of the discourse on multiculturalism was not always registering the religious orientation of some of the cultures and values that were being thought about in the discourse of diversity. So that that's where I felt like Wittgenstein's uh, attunement to differences. And perhaps here I'm thinking about a, a Cavellian reading of, of Wittgenstein. That I just felt like that would be a very rich area to explore and to think about. And that's, that's what I wound up thinking about uh, in part through my my doctoral studies, and maybe I'm still thinking about that. But as for what kept me with that, sometimes it's just that feeling that you you have an idea that you can't quite express, but until you've given it your best, you can't quite set it aside. You know, and and I I thought about you know other possible careers, but nothing that I was particularly enthusiastic or passionate about, whereas the idea of being a, a teacher of philosophy really appealed to me. You know, I thought about some of those seminars, some of those classroom and out of the classroom conversations I had as an undergrad, and I wanted, if possible, to find a way to maybe have a different role in that those kinds of conversations, but to continue the, those conversations with, with students. And anyhow, that, that's how I wound up. That's why I, I guess I didn't give up along the way. I'm wondering like whether the the ethic of perspicuity appeals to me simply because I can be some sometimes philosophically very perfectionistic. But yeah, I mean it's certainly wanting to wanting the conversation to keep going and wanting to play a helpful role in it. That's definitely something I think I share and resonate with. Yeah, and I mean so notwithstanding all that and it's some not something which is always easy. So I guess another thing I try to ask all people who I talk to are given that we're you know Wittgensteinians or whatever are there any there's some I mean there's there must be there's plenty of plenty of occasions for like hiccups along the way so do you have you found any particular fly bottles have you found yourself to be any in any particular fly bottles over the course of your work and I guess maybe how have you managed if if, if you have to escape those well I mean I suppose that ultimately I don't. I don't see us as ever being able to to fully escape from the fly bottles. But I think that there are maybe moments of uh, of escape in particular contexts. Maybe that's sort of the reverse of thinking about the ethic of perspicuity. It's it's a searching clarity. There there are moments of emerging out of the problems that entrap us, and I think that among them would be I suppose feeling like you can never really, you never have time to read everything that you might feel the need to read. Like when, when thinking about philosophy of religion that's engaging with religious diversity, I mean, how can you possibly be acquainted with all of the different 
religious traditions that would be relevant to your inquiry. It's, it's impossible. So that does necessitate some level of collaboration, which I would interpret both in terms of, you know, conversations that might take place at conferences or citation practices of um, engaging with lots of different voices in, in one's work. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say in terms of actual flyballs, I, I think about that. I also think about uh, economics and how in the last 40 years, seeing the, way th the ways that universities in the US and in many countries have moved into more of a so-called neoliberal model where programs have to justify themselves on the basis of uh, enrollment numbers, uh, among other factors, research output, and, and so on. And that can disadvantage programs in the humanities. And so this creates a kind of pressure for would-be faculty in the humanities to display the relevance of their work, which might be alienating. That basically, you know, I, I do think that relevance if we think of it as speaking to live existential concerns of a community, that's crucially important. And I think that philosophy has a responsibility to address that, at least sometimes. But if we think of relevance as, say, relevance to the, the, current, uh, the current hot topics in the field or uh, as being relevant to, I guess, criteria that might be applied externally to a, say a, a program in philosophy, that's where I, I grow concerned. And, and so I haven't really been someone who's been willing to bend my research to, to, to some of these uh, hot topics in, in the field. And, and so maybe, maybe that's a fly bottle, whether it's a sense of being preoccupied with my own questions, or maybe it's a sort of institutional economic fly bottle. I'm, I'm not quite sure which it is. Yeah, I mean, I resonate with what you're saying, not only because I'm in the thick of it, but because like, I, I, I'm, I'm guilty of this too, but theoretically, like when I'm thinking about it or when I'm reflecting on it, I'm so insulted every time somebody uses as a compliment the utterance that's interesting, or I find that interesting. And of course, I mean, I realize that often it is very interesting, but it sounds as though like sometimes you know, it can sound like hollow praise on the lips of like any number of philosophers because part of the commitment to diversity, to like understanding the conditions of both the social conditions of our lives philosophically and non-philosophically, but everything else. And of course, you know, given the subject matter of religion, there are times when truly I would like to say like, I'm already contemplating the most interesting things about like in the world. How could I possibly tailor them to like, your frivolous passing interest. You know, if I was speaking to the field as one big hole or to like, I don't know, the reified persona of like academic journals, I'm like, since when is the criteria of when something's valuable or worthwhile, whether or not some random person in the academy finds it interesting or whether it makes like tabloid news or something, like everyone is appallingly interesting. Like sometimes my soul breaks just with the realization, like you pointed out, that I'll never be able to re read everything or just meet everybody or to have all the conversations I could possibly wanna have. 
<laughs> it's almost like a Kantian motive for believing in immortality. It's like, I demand that <laughs> the conversation goes on. Like, I will literally like sink metaphysics on it. I will survive my own death so that I can harass like the world even more philosophically. And that's how I feel a lot of the times. But yeah, there, I mean, there's, it's certainly, I think, maybe not so much in continental philosophy, depending on because of the focus on texts or figures, but especially like given the the all important conference paper or the our journal article that everyone's proverbially working on, it can be a lot to say like not only do you have to pour your heart and soul into this, but then the thing by which we're going to judge is whether or not it's flashy enough to I don't know whatever the flashiness is supposed to do <laughs> to like rack up enrollment numbers or sell a bunch of copies or whatever it may be. Yeah, it's very, certainly it's demoralizing as a Wittgensteinian, I think especially because of all, all we learn and go through just to appreciate literally wonder at the world. <laughs> like it's very, it's bizarre to simultaneously have to go from like wondering at the world in those, like a moment of like aesthetic ecstasy and then say, well, I have a deadline. <laughs> let's go. Let's go continue working. But so, I mean, yeah, it's I find that it's definitely the case for me. I'm glad or maybe not glad, but it's reassuring to hear similar things from other Wittgensteinian philosophers of religion, because for me, it is very rough, like not only with the fact that the time required to take your time doing philosophy well, Part of me always wants to think, but of course Wittgenstein could say that. He was a rich Viennese person who just like happened into philosophy is like the comedy surrounding like, you know, the, the giving away of his wealth. I mean, as interesting as that may be, it's like literally if of course almost anybody, you know, I mean, as long as at Cambridge at the time that Wittgenstein was there, you know, was probably wind up becoming great in some way. It reminds me of something the Dalai Lama said once, or maybe not the Dalai Lama, one of his attendants that... Of course, the assumption is, or like, it's easy to believe these people, like the lamas are these reincarnated great people, so they deserve all this treatment. But there was once um, so, uh, a Tibetan Buddhist monk that I met who said, but if we treated all kids that way, of course, who wouldn't become like the Dalai Lama, right? Like, but it's a matter of how we allocate our resources and our dignities and all of that. But yeah, certainly I resonate with all that you've said. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that just gets more complicated sort of working out all of, you know, whenever you're uh, in a, in a teaching position, you know, the teaching a course according to a semester schedule uh, has all kinds of external requirements that are quite understandable, but it means that it can be difficult to slow down and have the, the kinds of conversations that, you know, are so valuable. And, and those, often will happen, say, right after a class has ended, <laughs> you know, where a couple students might be hanging out in, uh, in the room and, you know, you're, you're, you're a little tired, but you're thinking, oh, this is such a great conversation. All right, let's keep it going. Uh, anyhow. Yeah, I mean, I'm very fortunate. I'm fortunate to have been able to work with a, a number of undergraduate groups on sort of tailored reading projects whereby we just sort of like do take things slow and meet together and read together. And that's been incredibly enriching. I don't know how anyone survives without it, but that's definitely been like an important thing for me, like having those spaces where we can just talk or work, like talk through certain things in a concerted way with a concerted effort together. But yeah, being able to collaborate. Some of my best collaborations have been with undergraduates, um, which you would never think because of how 
undergraduate teaching is sometimes undersold in the academy. I, yeah. Yeah, well, thanks so much for slowing down yourself and for <laughs> coming to talk to me and have a, have strange questions. Um, are there any sort of remaining things you'd like me to talk about or say or anything you want to like, I don't know, like at this point, it's just sort of up to you. But yeah, th certainly thanks for talking with me and for writing the book. It's been very helpful. I will say like, I really enjoy the, um, whenever I was a lot younger, because I'm obviously I'm still pretty young, but I mean, whenever I was an undergrad, for instance, I always skipped through introductions and footnotes and endnotes. And now it's practically the only thing I read in books. I'm like, who is this person reading? Who are they citing? <laughs> like, what, have, what kind of gaps have they left? And you're like, I, I really do think your book is great as a resource for Wittgensteinians. Because um, a number of times, like I've been reading through it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I should go find that. And so thank you so much. It has really been a lot really helpful for me. And I'm sure others. Yeah, well, no, thanks. Thanks for saying that. Of course, that's how that's how it goes, and I'm sure with your own work, it, it'll be the same. You know, you're you're going to be developing that list of citations and footnotes that you know another grad student down the road will be looking through, and that's that, that's how it works. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's a wonderful system in, in how it works. I mean, not all of it, but I mean the idea. And I think maybe a good note to end on would be that that is something that I've just noticed. And it's interesting that I don't think a lot of, in my experience, a lot of philosophers don't seem to notice it. But in the same way that, for instance, sometimes of, some types of Christians have apostolic succession or they believe in that as a mechanism for transmitting authority, or so there are similar structures across different world religions for transmitting information and authority that involve or acknowledge that social aspect. And our field can be very similar. It isn't always because sometimes, you know, we just stay holed up in our offices, writing papers out of our head and our own reading. But I like to think, yeah, I am part, whether or not Wittgenstein intended to found a school and whether or not he successfully did and whether or not we all recognize each other as you know, Wittgensteinians or analytics or whatever other kind of philosophers, it is very interesting. And I think very good to be able to realize that we are part of a tradition and whether or not, we, like, however it is we work out whatever is problematic in that tradition, we don't have to do it alone. Certainly it's better when we don't do it alone, even if we wind up doing it alone. And as a result, I think, just think it's better when we work together and we collaborate. And I think that's, that's why I've enjoyed the study of religion and human beings for as long as I have. And it's cool that we are, it's cool to know others who are also interested in that and working on that. Yeah, well, Great, and I mean, I, I I think I mentioned to you in email that I started listening to your podcast, and uh, I look forward to seeing how it continues to develop with um, the kinds of people you're you're interviewing and the kind of topics that you're exploring on it. Yeah, we'll just it's like in Wittgenstein's words, we'll just have to look and see or watch <laughs> and see. But all right. Thanks so much again. And I will keep in touch. Hopefully I'll read more of your work and one day I'll have work of my own for you to read or to like glance at. Um, but yeah, thanks so much and have a good rest of your day and a week and everything. And again, we'll be in touch. Okay, sounds great. Uh, thanks so much, David.